Good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, I suspect you don't know how blessed you are to have a choir like you've just heard. You get to hear it every Sunday, and uh, that, especially the rendition of the song that you did was beautiful. So thanks for, uh, thanks for what you do. Uh, we're going to look at uh, the Sermon on the Mount today. So if you'd turn to Matthew 5, <clears throat> chapter 1, we're going to kind of read bits and pieces of it as we go through, but we're going to start by reading the beginning and then reading the end. <clears throat> so it begins this way. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Then if you flip uh, to the end, this would be chapter 7, verse 28 and 29. <clears throat> when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. And so after uh, possibly 45 minutes, or if Jesus was a good Presbyterian preacher, less than 30, he radically changed the mindset of his hearers. They had been hearing these scribes and Pharisees talk and, uh, frankly, misinterpret the scriptures, teaching uh, something that the scriptures had not taught. And Jesus, in the space uh, of the Sermon on the Mount, turned their entire worldview around. Um, uh, a couple years ago, I published a book, and one of the first um, uh, podcasts I did in promoting that book, somebody asked me, I guess what should be an expected question, is how long did it take you to write the book? And so I thought about it for a minute, and I came up with a very unexpected answer. I was going to say, well, I don't know, 12 months from start to finish. But then what dawned on me is, that, well, really it was more like 55 years because it was the culmination of many things God had taught me over a period of time. And I think maybe the Sermon on the Mount is the same story. You know, how long did it take Jesus to write the Sermon on the Mount? Uh, I don't know, a good six hours if he, if he worked hard. Uh, or was it, you know, 30 years of life? Because what Jesus has in the Sermon on the Mount is a blueprint for the way a redeemed people ought to live. Uh, Gandhi, the Indian guru and, and famous political leader, has said this, if the Christians in India would live out the Sermon on the Mount, all India would be Christian. What a powerful statement. If the Christians in India would live out the Sermon on the Mount, all India would be Christians. Uh, and we've had examples in the history of the church where we've done a good job, and that's actually occurred. Uh, consider this. is a book by Randy Stark, The Rise of Christianity, talking about the first couple of centuries of the church. Uh, and he said, uh, how did the church go from, in the first Sunday in A.D. 100, about 20,000 Christians in the entire world, you ever think about that? 
20,000 Christians. More people will go to church in Atlanta, Georgia today than existed in the entire church of Christ in the year 100. Fast forward to about 200 years later, around the year 300, and at that point, fully 50% of the known world, 35 million people or more, had been converted to Christianity. Space of 200 years. He goes on and gives lots of explanations about why that occurred, but I think Gandhi's statement is pretty much it. When the church lives out the Sermon on the Mount, people sit up and take notice and they uh, come to uh, come to the Lord. Question I want to put before you today, and maybe a challenge uh, as I leave town this afternoon, is if First Presbyterian Macon would live out the Sermon on the Mount. Would all Macon be saved? Let's look at this sermon. Uh, And uh, so basically I want you to know a couple of things. First of all, Jesus thought differently and he taught his people to think differently. Uh, There's somehow an underground back idea notion that somehow Jesus is reinterpreting the law uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. But in fact, I want you to understand Jesus is not reinterpreting the law, but he's teaching the law exactly as God had intended it to be understood. The Pharisees had misinterpreted, uh, had misinterpreted the law. Uh, and he taught them to think differently than the scribes and Pharisees. First, he taught us to think differently about ourselves. Do you realize that Christianity is the only religion that starts with a change to being? Every other religion starts with doing to become. Christianity starts with a change to your being, which then, as we'll see in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, allows us to do. We've struggled with that, especially evangelicals who believe this idea that we're saved by faith, not by works. We don't quite know what to do with the works piece. Uh, I think Jesus basically says is now that you've been redeemed, now you can go work. You can work. Uh, And he gives us a couple of frameworks to think differently about that. Uh, In the first five uh, verses, three through five, Jesus begins uh, with these um, um, blessings. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Note where Jesus starts. Jesus doesn't start with, blessed are those who work real hard to earn my love. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, Not middle class, not getting by. This is poor. Those that bring nothing to the offering. Christianity begins with that change to being, with that supplicant that comes to God, seeking that being to be changed. Once the being has been changed, then we hear this. Blessed are those who mourn. So there is a sense of loss. Uh, There's a sense of loss when we put away this idea that somehow we have credentials that enable us to enter God's presence. So we mourn that. But then you come out the other end, blessed are the meek, 
for they shall inherit the earth. What is meek? Meek is a word that means power under control. So you see, the, once the being is changed, there is a sense of loss granted. But then there is the submissive power to serve God, not to earn his love, but to thank him for what he has, he has done. Uh, <clears throat> and he gives us two, two frameworks in the Sermon on the Mount about how to think about that relationship between faith <clears throat> uh, and work. Um, <clears throat> uh, in 5, 6 through 10, we read this. Now that the work is, we're able to do these things. He's blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Power, meekness is power under control, and power under control seeks uh, seeks, um, <clears throat> hungers and thirsts for righteousness. The heart's been changed. Now we have the ability to begin, as Jesus says, to live like redeemed individuals. Uh, and so he gives us these two different, two different frameworks. Uh, in the one we've just seen, <clears throat> we should think differently about it. We don't think about our works as earning we think about our works as effort. Big difference. I don't come to God trying to gain favor. I come to God thanking him that he's redeemed me and allowed me the ability to serve uh, in his kingdom. Uh, the problem with the Pharisees <clears throat> is because they believed that the gospel begins with doing, right? They put doing first, and thus they thought more about looking good than about doing good, right? When we see this whole sermon is this battle between Jesus and the Pharisees, conceptually, uh, at least. They're the background. Uh, and that's where they began. They began by saying, uh, you must do in order to be saved. And so Jesus is taking uh, criticism with that. Um, so first of all, we, we, we think unlike them, it's not about effort. I'm sorry, it's not about earning, it's about effort. But then a really fascinating thing he tells us, chapter six is all about the contrast between your righteousness and his. So chapter six, verse one starts out by saying, do not think <clears throat> that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's a, a Greek word that means to show them in all their breadth, to show you how big uh, this is. <clears throat> I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, <clears throat> not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will in any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he gives three examples of of how to conceive about the proper relationship between faith and work. Uh, One relating to giving, when we give, when we pray, and when we fast. He says this in each case. Sorry, I'm looking at uh, verse 2 of chapter 6. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue, and to the, on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Many times I've read that, and it doesn't seem to be very helpful. He says, don't do it to get a reward, rather do it to get a reward. And that always confused me. If you go back and study the actual words that Jesus used, however, the first one in each of the three cases is the Greek word that means to earn a wage. To earn a wage. <clears throat> and the second one is to get a result. Oh, good, I got some things. She's telling me I need to drink some water. Thanks. The second is to get a result. That's a dramatically different situation. So what Jesus is saying is when it comes time for you to give, to pray, to fast, or do any good works, the Pharisees would come before God and say, okay, you know, here's my time sheet. I'm submitting my time sheet, and now you pay me my wage. Right? Whereas the believer is coming along and saying, Uh, The way Jesus actually concludes chapter 6, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and you'll get this result. So we don't don't come like the Pharisees, trying to look good. Uh, We come desiring to do good. We we come desiring to serve God uh, in his his kingdom. And then he's taught us to think differently about the law. So not everybody recognizes this, but what Jesus then uh, does in verse 7, starting in verse 17 of chapter 5, is he talks about each of the six uh, commandments in the second table of the law, those which have to do with the way we interact uh, with uh, with one another. Uh, So let me read you 5, 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will in any means disappear from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus is saying, you know, we have a notion about the law that somehow that was for the Older Testament. Uh, In reality, what Jesus says, no, that's... That's the, the beautiful guide we have once our being has been changed about how we ought, uh, how we ought to live. Um, <clears throat> the Pharisees saw it as a means to gain God's favor. 
We need to see it as a guide to the way redeemed people ought to live. Uh, Augustine, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, explains this reference to when Jesus is talking about the least commandments and the greatest commandments. Uh, many people thought, well, he'd say, well, some of the commandments are unimportant, some are more important. Augustine says, no, in fact, what Jesus is talking about here is the way the Pharisees approach the law is to minimize them, to make them as insignificant and easy to accomplish as possible. The way that Jesus describes them is in all their breadth and beauty. Uh, you've probably heard or you've thought when you've read the Psalms, you know, the Psalm says, how I love the law, right? I've always read that and thought, come on, who are you fooling? But if you understand the law in this, this way, what a beautiful guide, what an opportunity, uh, what, what, what a, a set of instructions to build a flourishing community. So let us just walk through. So first five is talked about in 17 through 20. Um, uh, verse 6, do not murder in 21 to 26. And notice the contrast. The Pharisees say, uh, do not murder or else you'll be taken to court. The Pharisees thought murder meant only do not take the life of. Do not take the life of. Jesus said it meant do everything in your power to protect and dignify the lives entrusted to your care. Jesus sees the law as this big. That's the way we should. Uh, and to do anything less than that is to murder. Uh, do not commit adultery, shown in verse 27 to 32. The Pharisees said it meant only not to have sex with someone you don't happen to be currently married to. Very small. Very small. Um, Jesus said it means to keep every commitment you make very broad. Be those who keep our commitments. Commandment number eight, do not steal, is shown in verse 38 to 42. The Pharisees said it meant only not to take something that belongs to another. Very small. Jesus said it meant use all of your assets whenever possible to cause the flourishing of your world. Very broad. Very broad. You see, Jesus has a very different picture uh, of the world that the redeemed should live in. Uh, verse Commandment 9, do not bear false witness in verses 33 to 37. The Pharisees developed an elaborate scheme of ways to swear oaths so that they could swear an oath and not to have to tell you the truth. Elaborate, elaborate form. Jesus says, why don't we all just agree to tell the truth all the time? Very broad, very broad. Uh, and then finally, do not covet. Uh, it, in verses 43 to 48, the Pharisees said it was okay to hate your neighbor and thus to manipulate circumstances to their disadvantage and to your advantage. And Jesus says, no. Love your enemies and do not seek to gain their disadvantage. Don't covet. Don't change things. Uh, seek to change things the way, the way they are. Uh, Jesus taught us to think differently about the world. And I just want to briefly give you a couple of things of reminder. It's not actually in this text, but it's in the background. Because Jesus is talking about, this is a guide for believers who want to live in the world. So what is the world that we're living in? Uh, and I think of just a, just a couple of things. 
Uh, he reminds us that God created it. Uh, he reminds us that God loves it. He reminds us that it is eternal. Think about that for a minute. We, the new heaven and the new earth will be here. This earth that you're currently called upon to care for and to live in will be with us into eternity. And then finally, God longs for the flourishing of his world. He wants it to be a beautiful place where uh, uh, people and things flourish. Uh, he taught us to think differently about then our relationship to that world, and that's where um, the, 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 the uh, law as a guidebook to image bearers becomes in. He, said, he basically did this. I'm going to read you in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 28. Fortunately, it's easy to find Genesis because it's the first one. Verse 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves uh, on the ground. Basically, he's uh, over the space of five days, God has created the world. And each day he's announced that this is good. God is looking at the world that he's created and he pronounces it good. The sixth day, he creates y'all. There's some facsimile thereof. And when the image bearer is now in the garden, in the world, God changes his perspective. When the image bearer is in the world, God says, now it's very good. It's gotten better. It's gotten better. Because uh, his... Uh, at the time, uh, redeemed and currently future to be redeemed because his people can now live in, are living in that, in that world. And he gives them three instructions. First of all, he said, this place is empty. I want you to create abundance. That's the first, our first job as image bearers. Number two, this place has infinite potential. Put into it by an infinite God. I want you to cultivate that potential for the flourishing of mankind. And then finally, this place is dangerous and incomplete. I want you to subdue it for the flourishing of your community. So basically, at the very beginning, uh, this is another thing that's unique about Christianity. Christianity is the only religion where work is part of paradise. We will, in paradise, we will continue, uh, we will continue uh, to work. And that's what the guidebook is for. The guidebook is to tell, it was originally given when the people of God were entering the promised land and Moses delivering uh, that, that uh, again, the, the documents to the people say, this is how when you go into the land, a redeemed people ought to live. 
and it plays that same way for us. People who think this way can change the world. People who think this way can change uh, the world. How might First Presbyterian Church of Macon, if you began to think this way, everybody who saw a member of this church and said, here's what characterizes them. Every one of them obeys all the reasonable laws. Everyone takes special care to dignify and protect the lives of those entrusted to their care. Everyone always keeps every commitment they make. Everyone employs a portion of their resources for the betterment of the community. Every one of those members always tells you the truth. I'd settle for that one, frankly, uh, in our world today. Everyone tells the truth all the time. Uh, and then finally, no one manipulates the world for their advantage and the disadvantage uh, of, of others. To paraphrase Gandhi, the First Presbyterian Church of Macon lived the Sermon on the Mount. All Macon would be saved. Let me pray. Lord, we do ask, make it so. Give us hearts uh, to, to serve you in your kingdom, to desire to be that meek individual, that person under submission who is committed to show our work in your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.